You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Welcome back to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado for episode 470 of this podcast. Today is Saturday, September 17th, 2022, and in this episode, we're going to be talking about church polity and the different views on how we Christians govern ourselves. I've been thinking this past week since a members meeting at church last Sunday, talking about the potential for another pastor being called or raised at our church in Evans. Colorado Summit View Community Church, potentially even three or four elders, unless I heard two or three elders being called, it really does, to my way of thinking, get at questions of polity and how does church government work. As a Christian, I believe there are three distinct spheres of human government which are ordained by God, they're instituted by God, they are good, generally speaking, in principle, even if, as with anything, people touch, people are engaged with, people are overseeing, they all three do have corruption and they do have abuse of power or they do have dereliction of duty. They all have attendant problems. And because there are so many circumstances in which These three spheres can see an exercise of power, either go well and be executed wisely and in a good way or unwisely, foolishly, corruptly, because there are so many circumstances and there are so many conditions and there are so many people with different ideas, frames of mind, backgrounds, ambitions, aspirations, There are a lot of ways government can go awry in all three spheres, but I dare say there are a lot of ways it can go right as well. And I think God gives us broad latitude. I think he also gives us boundaries. And so then the trick is, the trick is in these three spheres, the family, the church, and the state, we have to pay close attention to where has God given us freedom And where has God given us boundaries? Where has he told us he wants us to do this and not do that? And where has he left it open for us to do what we think is best? So what I want to do in this episode is I want to go through several resources I found online as I was trying to educate myself on how various churches, denominations, branches of Christianity, as Wikipedia might say, handle church polity differently, and to use these resources to try and navigate assessing what our options are, what is best, what is wise, what is good. In order for me to be able to weigh in at all, speak meaningfully, I want to have a broad overview of what the options are. I want to know what God's word says, I also want to understand terminology. And so actually 
to start off, before I start reading some of these articles and entries and whatnot, let's define a few terms from Oxford Languages, formerly Oxford Dictionary. First of all, synod. Do you know what a synod is or a synod? I think it's synod, but if you see the word spelled S-Y-N-O-D, <laughs> uh, synod is correct. I'm 95% sure. It's not familiar for me from the churches I grew up in. I don't recall us having synods or synods or anything like that. We just had the local church, by and large, and our Bibles. And that's what that was. But a synod, for those unfamiliar, is an assembly of the clergy and sometimes also the laity in a diocese or other division of a particular church. Or, there's a second definition, a Presbyterian ecclesiastical court above the presbyteries and subject to the general assembly. So, I read this, and you might be wondering to yourself, what is a presbytery? There's a couple of different definitions. The first is a body of church elders and ministers, especially in Presbyterian churches, go figure, an administrative body or court representing all the local congregations of a district, a district represented by a presbytery. That's the first definition. The second definition given from Oxford Languages is the house of a Roman Catholic parish priest. And that's interesting to me. That's really, really interesting because in a Presbyterian denomination, in Presbyterian churches, it is the body of elders and ministers. It's an organizational thing. It's the group. That's a Presbytery. They represent local congregations of a district, and we call it a Presbytery. But in Roman Catholicism, it's just the house where the priest lives. So it's interesting. You've got here, on the one hand, a very physical, uh, straightforward usage of the term, and in the other, you've got more of a social and organizational and perhaps, if you will, symbolic usage of the term Presbytery. The third definition given from Oxford Languages is, in architecture, the eastern part of a church chancel beyond the choir, i.e. the sanctuary. So the Presbytery is the sanctuary. Fun fact. The third term we'll define on the front end here is episcopacy. What is an episcopacy? Well, it's simply this, a government of a church by bishops. If you're part of a denomination or a network of churches that doesn't have bishops, well then, apparently, you don't have an episcopacy, I guess. This is also where the Episcopalian church gets its root. But a sub-definition of an episcopacy is the bishops of a region or church collectively, and this would be a noun, of course, the, epi- the, the episcopacy. That's a hard word to say, because again, that's not something that I necessarily grew up with in Baptist churches primarily as a kid. The episcopacy 
sounds very similar to the presbytery, to my way of thinking, except in the one case, we call them presbyters, and in the other case, we call them bishops. But another sub-definition for episcopacy is another term for episcopate, plural noun being episcopacies. So there you go. Those are three terms which I think, if I were you, it would be helpful to have defined on the front end here. So you're welcome. From Britannica.com, I looked up the article for Church Polity, and it reads as follows, and we'll give some running commentary as we go along, but starting from the top, the Orthodox and Roman Catholic churches are organized around the office of the bishop. As the development of the episcopacy has been covered above, and we won't read that part, under evolution of the Episcopal office, this section will examine the organization of the Reformation churches, and that would be Protestant churches. Occupying a special position among the churches is the Episcopal polity of the Anglican Communion. Despite the embittered opposition of Puritan and independent groups in England during the 16th and 17th centuries, this polity has maintained the theory and practice of the Episcopal office of apostolic succession. The low church tradition, however, emphatically adheres to the traditional worth of the Episcopal office without allowing the faithful to be excessively dependent upon its acknowledgement. The high church tradition, on the other hand, values Episcopal polity as an essential element of the Christian church that belongs to the church's statements of faith. The Episcopal branch of the Methodist church has also retained the bishop's office in the sense of the low church and broad church view. In the Reformation churches, an Episcopal tradition has been maintained in the Swedish state church, Lutheran, whose Reformation was introduced through a resolution of the imperial diet of Västerås in 1527 with the cooperation of the Swedish bishops. In the German evangelical, Lutheran, and Reformed territories, the bishop's line of apostolic succession was ruptured by the Reformation as imperial princes the Roman Catholic German bishops of the 16th century were rulers of their territories. They did not join the Reformation in order to avoid renouncing the exercise of their sovereign temporal rights as demanded by Luther's Reformation. On the basis of a legal construction originally intended as a right of emergency, the evangelical rulers functioned as the bishops of their territorial churches, but only in questions concerning external church order. This development was promoted through the older conception of the divine right of kings and princes, which was especially operative in Germanic lands. In matters of church polity, controversial tendencies that began in the Reformation remained as divisive forces within the ecumenical movement in the 20th century. For Luther and Lutheranism, the polity of the church has no divine legal characteristics. It is of a subordinate significance for the essence of the church falls under human ordinances, and is therefore alterable. Now, this is important. To make sure this is clear, what this would mean is essentially there's wiggle room, right? For this to say that for Luther and Lutheranism, the polity of the church has no divine legal characteristics, that's the same thing as saying that we don't need to be legalistic about it, essentially. It, there's wiggle room, right? It's 
less important to Lutherans, and it was less important to Martin Luther himself, how the church is organized, the polity of the church, the government of the church, was less important to him than was the essence of the church. And he saw this as being a human ordinance, not necessarily a divine ordinance, how we organize. It was more so, well, what's the end goal, right? Let's keep the main thing, the main thing. What's the end goal? And let's make sure that you know that's really at the end of the day what's getting accomplished, however we get there, so long as we get there. Is therefore alterable means there's liberty, there's freedom, and we can change it as it suits us, as it pleases us. In Calvinism, the Britannica.com article continues, on the other hand, e.g. in the Ecclesiastical Ordinances of 1541 and in Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, 1536, the Holy Scriptures appear as a codex from which the polity of the congregation can be inferred or derived as a divine law. Thus, on the basis of its spiritual legal character, church polity would be a component of the essence of the church itself. Both tendencies stand in a constant inner tension with one another in the main branches of the Reformation and within the individual confessions as well. So, in other words, on the one hand, you've got the Lutherans saying, to some extent, the ends of the essence of the church justify the means of the polity. On the other hand, you have Calvinism saying the means will change the ends that we get to, which is, you know, it's in some sense saying the same thing just in different ways. But in practice, these can look very, very different, where on the one hand, you say, all right, the big idea is the essence of the church. On the other hand, you say, well, no, here's what God's word says. And if we follow that strictly and diligently and faithfully, then the essence of the church will be what God wants it to be. But we don't fully comprehend what God wants the essence of the church to be until we obey, until we are faithful. And I would say, just speaking personally, and I've said it many, many times, everybody knows if they've been listening to this podcast or they know me personally, I am not a Calvinist. I don't describe myself as a Calvinist. You might say I'm Calvinist adjacent. There are a lot of things I appreciate about Reformed theology, Reformed tradition, and the Calvinists I know, many many of them, most of them, but not all of them. (laughs) Some of them are real winners, and I don't mean that in the sense of uh, God having forechosen them to be the way that they are, (laughs) the way way that they, they relate to people around them. That's a topic for another day. Point being here, I actually favor the Calvinist way of looking at church polity. I, you know, in reading through this, I recognize the difference and the distinction between how Luther and Lutherans conceive of this, and also, on the other hand, Reformed Calvinistic churches, that tradition, Calvin himself viewed this, and I I prefer and favor the Calvinist view on this. I think it's more correct. I think there are some things where Luther was perhaps more correct, or I appreciate the Luther essence, if you will. They do definitely have an emphasis on the essence, first and foremost, and that, in my experience, 
typically makes Lutherans more easygoing and uh, casual people less uptight. But nevertheless, I actually favor more of the Calvinistic view here regarding polity. But moving on, Britannica continues even in Lutheranism. However, there has been a demand for stronger emphasis upon the independent Episcopal character of the superintendent's or president's office. Paradoxically, in the Lutheran church, which came forth with the demand of the universal priesthood of believers, there arose the development of ecclesiastical authorities, but not the development of self-contained congregational polities. When a merger of three Lutheran bodies produced a new Evangelical Lutheran Church in America in 1988, it established the bishop as leader of the synodal jurisdictions. And again, I think I'm saying that right. Somebody who's more familiar, please correct me. I'm not trying to say it wrong. I just, I didn't grow up. I I, I didn't grow up with <laughs> this kind of polity. So it's, it's a little unfamiliar to me, the terminology. But Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, founded from the merger of three distinct Lutheran bodies in 1988, established the bishop as leader of the synodal jurisdictions. I think that's how to say it. In Lutheranism, these bishops replaced presidents. Bishops were regarded there, as in Methodism, as part of the well-being, but not the being or essence of the church. Reformed churches developed more or less self-contained congregational polities because the Reformed church congregation granted greater participation in the life of the congregation to the laity as presbyters and elders. So that's interesting, right? That's interesting, even just in the terminology. And we see this, and this has been a big debate I've been having with some people I know this past week. Is it okay to just change up the terminology so long as, like Lutherans, you say, this serves the well-being of the church? This is not necessarily the church, and it's not necessarily something to be confused with the official biblical office of this, that, or the other, uh, you know, overseers, elders, deacons, for instance. But we can create these new positions. We have the freedom to do that. That's a very Lutheran way of thinking about it versus a more Calvinistic, more Reformed way of thinking about it which, as I understand it, would be we're going to see individual congregations as self-contained polities. The Reformed congregation takes more of a role, more of an active role in the life of the congregation because the laity can be presbyters and elders. You can have lay elders. You don't necessarily have to have professional, so to speak, clergy in Reformed tradition. You can have lay people, laymen who are faithful and recognized for their faithfulness and sobriety and godliness raised to positions of leadership in the church. Which again, I, I favor that. I think that's I think that's more correct. But moving on. Presbyterian polity appeals to the model of the original church. The policy of the Scottish Presbyterian Church and the Presbyterian churches of North America is primarily based upon this appeal, which was also found among many English Puritan groups and other spiritual descendants of John Calvin. It proceeds from the basic view that the absolute power of Christ in his church postulates the equality of rights of all members and can find 
expression only in a single office, that of the presbyter. Holders of this office are elected by church members, formally analogous to the Democratic-Republican political model, and accordingly, in contrast with the monarchy of the papal and the aristocracy of the Episcopal church polity. In Presbyterian churches, the differences between clergy and laity have been abolished in theory and to a great extent in practice. A superstructure of consistories and presbyteries is superposed one upon the other with increasing disciplinary power and graduated possibilities of appeal. Through their emphasis upon the divine legal character of Presbyterian polity, the Presbyterian churches have represented a Protestant polity that counters the Roman Catholic concept of the church in the area of ecclesiastical polity. In ecumenical discussions of the 20th century, the divine legal character of this polity was occasionally noticeable in its thesis of an apostolic succession of presbyters as a counterthesis to that of the apostolic succession of bishops. Now, what does all that mean, right? Like, that's a lot. It's a lot of terminology which you may or may not be familiar with, flying fast and hard here and there. Big idea, Presbyterianism is part of why the United States of America is not a monarchy. The Queen of England, Elizabeth II, recently passed away. And even while we take interest here in the United States, because we are interested in what's going on in the wider world, and we were once a part of the British Empire, nevertheless, Queen Elizabeth II is not our queen. We don't have a queen. We don't have a king. We have a president and we have a Congress. We have a bicameral legislature. We have a Supreme Court. We have state government and local government, and we have a federal government. We have these co-equal branches of our government, which are, at least in theory, elected in their individual members at a federal level, at a state level, at a local level, at a city level, at a township level, at a county level. You might have somebody who is elected, or you might have somebody who's appointed, right? And so it's it's a it's a mixed bag, and there's a lot of checks and balances, but that's a very much more Presbyterian way of organizing. And if you read how the Scots invented the modern world, you'll see that Scots-Irish coming over, Scots-Presbyterian in particular, coming over to the New World had an outsized role in the fact that the United States did break away from England, the British, etc. And subsequently, they had a huge influence on the military and how our military became so dominant. The structure and organization of our armed forces here in the United States was very much dictated and dominated by Scots-Irish. If you read Born Fighting by Jim Webb, former senator from, I believe it was West Virginia, might have been Virginia, he talks all about that and it's very fascinating. But this is a very Presbyterian kind of country that we live in with a mixture of Democratic and Republican elements. That's a very Calvinistic way of thinking about government because that's how the church is governed in a Presbyterian, Calvinistic, Reformed model. Go figure. By contrast, it's not for no reason that Roman Catholics and Episcopalians 
in particular, have a very top-down approach, have a very two-tiered approach to church life. The Roman Catholic and Episcopalian views on church government mirror very closely the kinds of civil government you find in Roman Catholic and Episcopalian parts of the world. That is to say, you have a king, you have a queen, you have an emperor, you have the pope, and it's very top-down. I will tell you what it is, and if you talk back, well then, it might be off with your head. Just saying. You might be out. Even if you're right. And maybe especially if you're right, actually, sometimes. But moving on. Congregationalism, Britannica reads, stresses the autonomous right of the individual congregation to order its own life in the areas of teaching, worship, polity, and administration. This demand has been raised and practiced by the medieval sects and led to differentiated polities and congregational orders among the Hussites and the Bohemian Brethren. Congregationalism was advanced during the Reformation period by the most diverse parties in a renewed way, not only by enthusiasts, or in German, Schwarmer, and Anabaptists, who claimed the right to shape their congregational life according to the model of the original church, but also by individual representatives of Reformed sovereigns, such as Franz Lambert, François Lambert de Avignon, whose resolutions at the Omberg Synod of 1526 were not carried out because of a veto by Luther. The beginnings of modern congregationalism, however, probably lie among the English refugee communities on the European mainland, in which the principle of the established church was replaced by the concept of a covenant sealed between God or Jesus Christ and the individual or the individual congregation. So here again, we've got something interesting, right? We have the idea of the independent church, the independent church, which is going to do its own thing. Just like you could have individual Christians who say, we have our Bible, we have the Holy Spirit, and that's all we need. That's all we need for the Christian life. And everybody else, we can take them or leave them, but that's all we need. Now, congregationalism is, if you scale that up, just a little bit, not not too much, but a little bit. Scale it up to the size of a local church body. That local church body is saying, we have our own pastor, at least, maybe multiple pastors, and we are going to do our own thing. We've got our Bible, we study it, we teach it, we read it, and thank you very much. We're going to do what we think is best, regardless of uh, a larger organization or structure. But you know, some of what you miss out on there is a larger network or denomination or body of churches to provide accountability for that local congregation, that small, individual, independent church. Continuing on, the basic concepts of congregationalism are the understanding of the congregation as the holy people under Jesus Christ, the spiritual priesthood, kingship, and prophethood of, of every believer and the exchange of spiritual experiences between them, as well as the introduction of a strict church discipline exercised by the congregation itself, the equal rank of all clergy, the freedom of proclamation of the gospel 
from every episcopal or official permission and performance of the sacraments according to the institution of Jesus. By virtue of the freedom of self-determination fundamentally granted every congregation, no dogmatic or constitutional union, but rather only county union of the congregationalist churches developed in England. North America, however, became the classic land of congregationalism as a result of the great Puritan immigration to New England, beginning with the pilgrims on the Mayflower in 1620. In the 20th century, acknowledgement of the full authority of the individual congregation ran through almost all Protestant denominations in the United States and was even found among the Lutherans. That That's interesting, right? That's interesting, very interesting that this happened in particular in the 20th century, that individual congregations asserted their rights to do what they were going to do, to do what they thought best, to not be subject to a larger denomination or bishop, if you will, over them. Continuing on, numerous other forms of congregational polity have arisen in the history of Christendom, such as the association idea in the Society of Friends. Even Pentecostal communities have not been able to maintain themselves in a state of unrestrained and constant charismatic impulses, but instead have had to develop a legally regulated polity. This was what happened in the early church, which likewise was compelled to restrain the freedom of charisma in a system of rulers and laws. Pentecostal communities either have been constituted in the area of a biblical fundamentalism theologically and on the basis of a congregationalist church polity constitutionally, or they have ritualized the outpouring of the Spirit itself. Thus, the characteristic dialectic of the Holy Spirit is confirmed. The Spirit creates law and the Spirit breaks law, even in the most recent manifestations of its working. And that's a scary thing, right? That's a very scary idea that is common to Pentecostalism, charismatic movements, is that basically, as long as you believe you've got a word from the Lord, you can ignore what God's word says, because he's doing a new thing. That's what we're going to say. He's doing a new thing. He's given me a new revelation. And whatever I now say, if I'm the most charismatic person here, so to speak, in more than one way, well, that's what it's going to be. And you can't really challenge it. You you really can't. You're, you're going against the spirit. You're quenching the spirit. You're disobeying God. It's a very scary way and a very unstable way to run the business of the church. I would say, with regards to summing up this uh, Britannica article, God has given us two guides, primarily, the Spirit and His Word. And we have to understand that God's Spirit is in a believer to convict of sin and to comfort and to guide and likewise that we are commanded in the scriptures to test the spirits and lastly god's word and god's spirit are not going to contradict each other they're just not so if you think you're getting a word from the lord but it directly contradicts what his word says probably not the lord that might be your imagination it might be just an emotion you're feeling right now don't mistake your emotional state for God himself. That's a dangerous thing. Pretty soon, your emotions become God if they haven't from the get-go. Just because you feel a strong emotion 
with regards to God, that does not mean that your emotions now can be God over you. That's a very, very dangerous thing. And I think that's been the cause of a lot of problems, actually, in the 20th and 21st century so far of American life. But that is Britannica. That's what Britannica has to say about church polity. And moving on to the second resource I found, this one actually is from the Gospel Coalition, which I typically uh, don't like because one of the two co-founders was Tim Keller, and I don't care for Tim Keller. I think he is not just a little wrong. I think he's very, very, very dangerously wrong uh, about social justice and wokeism and all the rest. And for others to have partnered with him and to affirm him, to recommend him, uh, I think is not wise. I think that is not a wise decision. I don't agree with it. I don't like it. Nevertheless, not everybody who writes for TGC or has ever written for TGC needs to be distrusted or thrown out just because they wrote for TGC. I think that would be silly and dangerous, and that's not a good way to go about establishing who's credible and who isn't. So in this case, I found an article as I was just Googling it. I was Googling church polity. Uh, This one's titled Five Views on Church Government, written by Trevin Wax, March 5th, 2014. It's a summary of a book by certain Chad Owen Brand and R. Stanton Norman titled Perspectives on Church Government, Five Views. Or I should say these two gentlemen are the editors of this book, which sounds very interesting, actually. Uh, They assembled five essays, each representing different forms of church polity. One written by a Daniel Aiken regarding single elder-led congregational model churches, another by a James Leo Garrett Jr., Democratic Congregational Model, another by a Robert L. Raymond, talking about the Presbyterian Model, and another by James R. White, Plural Elder-Led Congregational Model. Uh, Lastly, a Paul F. M. Zoll talks about the Episcopal Model. So, quick summary reads as follows. The question at the heart of this book is, what is church polity and how important is it? So for me, this sounds like a very interesting book. A book, if I happen to get a copy, uh, get my hands on a copy, I should like to read. And then maybe we can do a follow-up episode. I'll check out Audible and Hoopla and see if I can find a copy of this. But polity is defined by Brand and Owen as governance and organization. That's why the book's essays focus primarily on how a church or a group of churches organize and administrate themselves. Single elder-led church, the essay, here a quick highlight. Aiken makes the case for a pastor-teacher who functions as first among equals. If there is a plurality of elders or a single pastor who leads the congregation, the purpose of Aiken's essay is not to demand every church be led by a single elder, but instead to make the case that the New Testament allows for flexibility in the number of elders. Robert Raymond makes a case for Presbyterian church government, quote, that is, governance of the church by elders slash overseers in graded courts, with these officers executing the responsibilities of their office in unison and 
on a parity with each other and with the material care and service of the church being looked after by deacons known corporately as the diaconate under the supervision of the elders slash overseers. That, again, I think is the model that I recognize in the New Testament. I recognize that as being found in both 1 Timothy and Titus when Paul's laying out qualifications for not just overseers, but overseers and deacons. There are two offices. One, the spiritual welfare and overall overseeing of the church. The other being the practical needs, if you will. The material care and service is the way it's phrased here, but that is the diaconate. The diaconate serve under and are accountable to the elders and the overseers. Next, there's the congregation-led church. James Leo Garrett Jr. makes the case for this one and defines congregational polity as, quote, that form of church governance in which final human authority rests with the local or particular congregation when it gathers for decision-making, end quote. So here you have a very democratic notion, a very democratic notion of the church. The church is going to vote on this. And there's not really, uh, in my experience, in having attended or been around congregation-led churches, there's really not a lot of authority in the office of the pastor himself. The pastor himself is a servant at the beck and call of the congregation, and anyone in the congregation can, unfortunately, if they're a strong, forceful personality, bully the official leadership of the church and uh, be really rather awful, honestly. It might be a potential for abuse in elder-led churches that the elders can get a big head and run roughshod over the laity, but I would say in a congregation-led church, it can be just the opposite to where it's so democratic that it's really just a matter of counting noses or figuring out what layperson or family of laypersons can bully the rest of the congregation into going their way. It, it can get ugly in my experience, and I personally am not a fan of the congregation model uh, as I've seen it, the congregation-led church model of polity. Next is the Episcopal polity. Paul Zoll, he writes what the uh, author of this piece at the Gospel Coalition says is the oddest of the five essays because he is the only one who argues against the idea that one polity is correct. Zoll believes, quote, when polity and ecclesiology become absorbing questions for the church, you can bet we are in a time of comparative stasis, end quote. So that is to say, if this is what we're obsessing over, it's not a good look. It's not a good sign. It's not a good sign that we would be debating polity. We're in a time of comparative stasis. And hopefully that's not a... Uh, uh, bad news for me that I'm thinking about polity and I'm trying to think about, is polity important? Uh, now, I'm not an Episcopalian. Paul Zoll, if he was arguing the case for Episcopalianism, 
and then saying basically it's all just whatever, uh, that sounds like an Episcopalian. The next paragraph reads, Because of this belief, Zoll does not give space to biblical exegesis or analysis of relevant texts. Instead, he gives a brief historical overview of Anglicanism, explains the episcopacy, and then highlights its strengths and weaknesses. And yes, and that sounds like everything that's wrong with Anglicanism and Episcopalianism. So far as I know, from from my experience, I don't see a lot of conservative um, moral rigor, spiritual rigor, among the Episcopalians and the Anglicans, I see a lot of confusion about the LGBT business, a lot of uh, just going along with whatever is happening in the broader culture. Not a lot of biblicality there. So even in talking about their form of church government, it would seem as though there's kind of a shrug of, you know what, if we're even talking about that, that's a bad sign. Well, of course you would say that as an Episcopalian, in my view. Plural elder-led congregation. Uh, James R. White. James White I'm familiar with, and I like James White uh, from what I've seen and heard. James White presents the plural elder-led church, a polity distinct from the two other forms of congregationalism, in that White believes a plurality of elders is essential. It appears also that for White, these elders have more authority than in a strictly democratic variation of congregationalism. In opposition to Zoll's assertion that polity is unclear in the New Testament, White claims the structure of the church is so clearly seen and its offices so plainly taught in the inspired scriptures that to go beyond their warrant is in essence to seek to improve upon the divine wisdom, end quote. And I, I am inclined to agree with that. I am inclined to agree with that. I do think we have freedom. I, I think it would be unwise for us to say in an emergency or in kind of a transitional uh, circumstance or during a church plant that, you know, rather than tweak or adjust, you just shouldn't even have a church at all because you you might be accused of trying to improve upon the divine wisdom. But I would say when it's an option, when it is an option, the argument that James White is making, that resonates. And if we would not prefer that, we don't want that, uh, I think that's not as wise as we can be. That, that's how I would put it. I think that's not nearly so wise as we can be. And we should consider our motives if we don't want that. That's my view. From Theopedia.com, which aspires to be a Christian theology, church history, doctrine, uh, alternative to Wikipedia. There is an entry for church government. It reads as follows, and I apologize if I'm reading too much and not giving you enough uh, running commentary, but it just is what it is. I'm trying to learn these things right along with you. But church government, sometimes known as church polity, is that branch of ecclesiology or the study of the church that addresses the organizational structure and hierarchy of the church. There are basically three types of church government that have developed in the various church denominations the Episcopal, the Presbyterian, and the Congregational. Now, the article asks, or the entry asks, does the Bible prescribe a type of church government? Here's some notable quotes they have highlighted helpfully. One from a George Eldon Ladd. He says, It appears likely that there was no normative pattern of church government in the apostolic age, and that the organizational structure of the church 
is no essential element in the theology of the church. Next quote from J. Alec Motier. It is not as much as hinted in the New Testament that the church would ever need or indeed should ever want or tolerate any other local leadership than that of the eldership group. So those are, those are some interesting quotes. Those are some interesting quotes. Not a lot of time spent on explaining the Episcopal model, but we've already talked about that a bit. The Episcopal form of government has been the polity of the church Catholic as early as Ignatius of Antioch, all the way down to the time of the Reformation. Advocates for an Episcopal form of church government argue that the sheer fact that it went virtually uncontested until the time of the Reformation testifies to its claims of apostolicity, although not all contemporary Episcopalian apologists argue from history rather than scripture. A notable example is Ray Sutton, the suffragan bishop in the Diocese of Mid-America of the Reformed Episcopal Church, who has produced work arguing that the Episcopal system is biblical. Presbyterian, the next section, common in Presbyterian and Reformed churches, this form of church government is commonly described as elder-run or presbyter-run. Typically, original authority, that is the authority that the church believes Christ gave to it, is said to reside at the local elder level in this model of polity. Thus, the highest authority in a Presbyterian or a Reformed church after Christ is said to be the elders of the church. Those elders are typically elected by the congregation on a periodic basis. Usually a term lasts about three years. Sometimes elders are elected by the drawing of lots, which is fun. And that is biblical, actually, truth be told. When they were trying to figure out how to replace Judas Iscariot, that's how they determined it. Those who are elected to office serve their terms as the spiritual, theological, moral, visionary leaders of the congregation. They also then participate in the governance of the regional body of churches, sometimes called a classis, by sending delegates to a classis meeting on a regular basis. The classical level of church governance in the Presbyterian model is not a higher authority, but rather is seen as a delegated authority, one that only derives its power from the acquiescence of the elders at the local level. In a similar manner, classes will send a select number of delegates to a still broader body of authority, sometimes called a synod. The synod will meet regularly, yearly, for example, to discuss major issues of theology and practice facing the whole denomination. The synod, too, however, does not have a higher authority except insofar as its delegated authority is accepted by classes and local elders. In this structure, it is important to note as well that the reverend or minister of the word and sacrament, the pastor, is recognized essentially as one of the elders with a specialized role. The pastor in this model of governance does not have special authority beyond that of the elders, except insofar as, due to their role and training, they are recognized to be expert in the spiritual and theological life of the local congregation. So that is interesting. And that is not what I grew up with, by the way, just to be clear. I grew up with Baptist polity. That's what I'm accustomed to. That's what I'm familiar with. My dad was raised Mennonite. My mom, I believe, grew up 
Baptist, I think, if I'm not mistaken. I certainly grew up Baptist. But moving on, the Theopedia entry for Congregational says that Congregational polity draws its name from the independence of local congregations, from the authority and control of other religious bodies, as was already stated earlier. Paige Patterson has summarized Congregational polity as follows, quote, The Oxford Dictionary of the Christian Church defines Congregationalism as that form of church polity which rests on the independence and autonomy of each local church. According to this source, the principles of democracy in church government rest on the belief that Christ is the sole head of his church. The members are all priests unto God, and these units are regarded each as an outcrop and representative of the church universal. End quote. That is a quote from Who Runs the Church? Four Views on Church Government by Stephen B. Cowan, Zondervan, 2004. Churches organized with a congregational polity may be involved in conventions, districts, or associations which allow them to share common beliefs, cooperate in joint ministry efforts, and regulate clergy with other congregations. Churches organized with a congregational polity generally disapprove of acknowledging authority in councils or other proceedings involving delegates or representatives from outside the local congregation. However, congregational polity does not prevent a local congregation's leadership from adopting the decision or position of another congregation or council or other gathering. So, to sum up, basically, they're independent, and they like it that way. And within the local body, it's democratic, because Christ is the only real authority, and everyone else is all even and equal. Single elder pastor-led, this would be what I'm familiar with growing up in Baptist churches. In a congregational church led by a single elder pastor, primary leadership in all decisions and doctrinal determinations is vested in a single leader. Typically, this leader also performs the duties of a senior pastor, minister, and provides the preaching and teaching ministries for the church in addition to administrative leadership. Often, a congregational church led by a single elder pastor was founded by that singular leader or by a previous single leader who appointed the present leader. Paige Patterson argues that despite biblical evidence that undeniably exists in support of a plurality of elders, several factors support the ascendancy of a principal elder as the singular leader of the congregation. Those factors include, one, the general pattern of the Old and New Testaments, e.g. Moses, the Judges, Peter, James, brother of Jesus. Two, the pattern of the early church, e.g. John Chrysostom in Antioch and at St. Sophia's in Constantinople, Augustine in Hippo, Jonathan Edwards in Northampton. Three, influence of the synagogue on the church, including adoption by the church of the president of the synagogue in the form of the pastor, elder, overseer. And four, the psychology of human leadership. Responding to Patterson, L. Roy Taylor raises concerns regarding the accountability of this polity. Taylor, writing as a proponent of Presbyterian polity, comments, In my estimation, it is easier for a few knowledgeable and determined people to manipulate a convention, congregationalism, than it is to manipulate a deliberative body. Writing as a proponent of plural elder congregationalism, Samuel E. Waldron points out that a single elder congregational polity is precisely the model that led to episcopacy in the early church. 
Patterson's position addresses common practices by Baptist churches in America. It does not address single elder congregational polity structures common in Pentecostal, charismatic, and congregations from other traditions, though experience has brought about modification of the more extreme manifestations, single elder congregationalism in some of these traditions, consolidated authority to the point of autocracy. Concerns related to the more extreme forms of single elder congregationalism has resulted in more accountability within Pentecostal congregations, such as those affiliated with the Assemblies of God. Also, common experience with the consequences of unaccountable authority, ranging from inappropriate use of church finances all the way to the tragedy in Jonestown, are often relied upon by opponents of this structure in favor of increased accountability. So, there you have it. And I am familiar with that. I'll be honest. A certain minister in Sydney, Montana, up until recently, comes to mind as an example, and yet there were technically other elders, there were technically deacons, but the issue was those other elders, those other deacons, were serving at the will and whim of one particular very forceful elder, pastor, autocrat. That is not, I think, the safest course. Not that I think the congregational model is ideal, but I think that having a single man in whom all of the authority is concentrated is not particularly wise. I don't think it's any wiser to say we're going to be radically democratic, but there you have it. I think checks and balances are wise. Democratic congregational... Theopedia continues, in a congregational church led by a democratically elected leadership board or council, final authority for decisions and doctrinal determinations are vested in a plurality of representative leaders selected by the congregation. The titles of the individual leaders and the structure of the leadership board or council varies. One common use of this structure involves the election of elders to an elder board The elders make business and spiritual decisions for the congregation by committee and serve individually as examples and mentors to the rest of the congregation. Often deacons are also elected to provide leadership within specific committees, ministries, or administrative functions. Typically, deacons are subordinate to the authority of the elders. In some congregational churches, deacons serve on a unified board with the elders with equal voting authority. And that is what my experience was in the church that I was a deacon at here several years ago, where I resigned because it just was not tenable. There were bad actors in the church who were misbehaving, who couldn't really be confronted or contradicted. And because they really were the ones who held the authority over the elders, over the pastor, they were pretty much untouchable. And here I was initially asked to serve as an elder, and then that was whittled down to being a deacon. And yes, I sat on the board, but I essentially had no say. I was essentially just a token. I was a person to rubber stamp. And when I was not content with that, I basically found that, no, this is not not a role I can fill in good conscience. I can't 
with good conscience stay. And even though you guys are telling me, hey, no, please, please do stay. I cannot in good conscience stay because you guys are asking me to be silent about things I can't keep silent about. And you're asking me to rubber stamp things that I can't condone, I can't approve. And yet this is a unfortunately popular model. And I think it's unwise, to be honest, just to level with you, I think it's unwise to view the options as limited to either A, a single pastor who can be autocratic and abusive, or a congregation which can be radically democratic and also potentially abusive. I think checks and balances are a good idea, frankly. Plural elder-led, the next section from Theopedia, in a congregational church led by a plurality of elders, final authority for all decisions and doctrinal determinations are vested in a plurality of elders acting in committee. This structure is very similar to the elder board approach to the democratic congregational structure, often differing only in the method used to select the elders and or in the term of service of each elder. In some congregations, elders are appointed by someone or some entity respected by the congregation and allows this authority. In some congregations, elders serve until they resign, die, or are removed by the congregation or their peers for doctrinal or moral failures. This structure can, but does not always, include the use of deacons or other leaders subordinate to the authority of the elders. This is common in evangelical free churches and some Baptist churches. By the way, the democratic congregational model is common in Baptist, congregational, and Lutheran churches. The last section here from Theopedia is titled The Biblical Pattern. So here's where you're going to find out what the editor of Theopedia favors, perhaps, maybe, possibly. (laughs) The three prominent forms of church government all appeal to the scriptures, as well as church tradition, for support of their respective positions. Since the Bible is not silent on the subject, key elements in the biblical examples are germane. Greg Manson has noted the following. There is no distinction between elders and bishops. Titus 1, 5-7, Acts 20, 17, 28. These represent the same office and order. So an elder is the same thing as a bishop. Each congregation and center of leadership is to have a plurality of elders. Acts 14, 23, 2017, Philippians 1, 1. Not one man rule. These elders have oversight of the church. Acts 20, 28, 1 Peter 5, 2-3 and are thus responsible to rule the congregation. 1 Timothy 3, 5, 5, 17, 1 Thessalonians 5, 12, Hebrews 13, 7, 17, 24. They judge among the brothers, cross-reference 1 Corinthians 6, 5. And in contrast to all the members, they do the rebuking, 1 Timothy 5, 20. Now, let me just stop right there. 1 Timothy 5, 20. Does it actually say that? Let's look that up. Let's just... See, 1 Timothy 5.20, But those elders who are sinning you are to reprove before everyone so that the others may take warning. That's the NIV, KJV. Them that sin rebuke before all that others also may fear. 
Interesting how different that reads in the KJV, by the way. ASV, them that sin reprove in the sight of all, that the rest also may be in fear. NASB, 1995 edition, those who continue in sin rebuke in the presence of all, so that the rest also will be fearful of sinning. ESV reads, as for those who persist in sin, rebuke them in the presence of all, so that the rest may stand in fear. What's interesting is I don't see that actually saying that the elders alone do the rebuking. I don't, I don't see that. So, point of order. Might be worth checking out the rest of these references as well, seeing if they do check out. Christ calls them, continuing on with Theopedia, Christ calls them to use the keys of the kingdom to bind and loose. Matthew 16, 19, 18, 18, John 20, 23. These keys being the preaching of the gospel. 1 John 1, 3. Administering of the sacraments. Matthew 28, 19 through 20. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, And the exercise of discipline. Matthew 18, 17. 1 Corinthians 5, 1 through 5. The elders are assisted in their ministry by deacons who give attention to the ministry of mercy. Philippians 1, 1, Acts 6, 1 through 6, cross-reference 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. If I can go back, actually, just one sec, Matthew 18, 17. So the elders are said to have the exercise of discipline. Matthew 18, 17 reads as follows. If he refuses to listen to them, tell the church. If he refuses to listen even to the church, then treat him as you would a Gentile or tax collector. Now, this might bear further study. In fact, I'm quite sure it does. But in the ESV, this says, tell it to the church. It doesn't say, tell it to the elders. That's the elders' job. They'll take care of it. They'll handle it. You just butt out, mind your own business. Actually, the first step is you are going to your brother to explain the fault. And the second step is you are taking along two or three witnesses to go back if he's not responsive. And then the next step is you are taking your brother before the church and telling it to the church if he is unrepentant and refuses to turn from his wicked ways. So I don't know quite where Greg Banson is getting this idea that that's solely or primarily for the elders to do with regards to the exercise of discipline. That's just not that's not quite what Matthew eighteen seventeen says. You might read that into it, but I don't think you're reading it out of that passage, if I may say so. Continuing on. The elders are assisted in their ministry by deacons who give attention to the ministry of mercy, Philippians 1, 1, Acts 6, 1 through 6, cross-reference 1 Timothy 3, 8 through 13. The office bearers in the church are nominated and elected by the members of the congregation, e.g. Acts 6, 5 through 6, but must also be examined, confirmed, and ordained by the present board of elders. Acts 6, 6, 13, 1 through 3, 1 Timothy 4, 14. Members of the church have the right to appeal disputed matters in the congregation to their elders for resolution, and if the dispute is with those local elders, to appeal to the regional governing body, the presbytery, or beyond that, to the whole general assembly, Acts 15. The decisions of the wider governing bodies are authoritative in all the local congregations, Acts 15, 22 to 23, 28, 30, 16, 1 through 5. So there you have it. There's Theopedia. Last but not least, and this is going long, but this is a big deal. Actually, church polity is a really big deal 
whatever the Episcopalian writing, the book that uh, the Gospel Coalition reviewed in 2014 might think. It, it, church polity is a big deal. And actually, more to the point, all this talk of unity, it's really hard to have unity if we can't agree about church polity. It really is hard to have agreement if we can't agree about what is and is not biblical, necessary, essential, optional. Gotquestions.org, then. Got questions. I got questions. I've always got questions. Gotquestions.org has an entry titled, What are the different forms of church polity? And I'll read this for you, and then we'll wrap up. I promise we're almost there, almost to the end. And I quote, Church polity, church government, refers to how a church's leadership is structured. While there are many variations and nuances found within individual churches, and these are too numerous to list, essentially all are variations of one of the following, Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Congregational. The subject may be complicated by the fact that there are denominations known by each of these names. Yes, you think? Every church is either independent with no higher authority outside of that local church, although, uh, if I may, not to say I'm in favor of the independent church thing necessarily, I'm not against it necessarily, I'm just making a point. Those who are for independent churches would not say they don't believe that there's any higher authority. They would say Christ is the higher authority, right? Like that, that is the claim. Christ is our higher authority, just to clarify, but moving on. Every church is either independent or it is part of a larger group or denomination with leaders who exert control from outside the church. One type of church polity is Episcopal. The word Episcopal is from the Greek word episkopos, which is often translated in English as bishop or overseer. This form of church government functions with a single leader, often called a bishop. The Roman Catholic Church may be the most well-known of the Episcopal-type churches. The Pope is also the Bishop of Rome. Below him are other bishops who are, in turn, responsible for other bishops down to the parish priest. The Anglican Church, Episcopal Church, and Greek Orthodox Church all have this form of government— One priest or bishop answers to another who answers to another until at the top there is one bishop, often called the archbishop, who has final authority. Many other churches have an Episcopalian form of government, even though they may not officially recognize it. Some independent churches have one pastor who has ultimate authority in all decisions of the church. Sometimes this is called the, quote, strong pastor form of government. Some multi-site churches may have single pastor at location, but one, quote, head pastor, who is the final authority over all of the sites. Some churches may claim to have Presbyterian, elder, or congregational rule, but in reality have a single bishop or strong pastor who has final authority. Another type of church polity is the Presbyterian form. The word Presbyterian is from the Greek word presbyteros, which is usually translated elder. In this form of government, authority rests not with a single individual, but with the body of elders or presbyters. In denominational churches, the local board of elders answers to a higher board of elders, which is made up of select elders to represent each church. 
Ultimately, the final board of elders, sometimes called the General Assembly, has authority on matters in that denomination. In independent or autonomous churches, final authority rests with the local board of elders. In some churches with elder rule, the elders are elected or ratified by the congregation. However, once the elders are ratified, the congregation does not have power to remove them or overturn their decisions. The third type of church polity is the congregational form. In congregational churches, the final authority rests with the congregation. This polity takes various forms. In some churches, there are almost no designated leaders, or, as some might say, except the Holy Spirit. And the congregation is involved in virtually every decision that has to be made, from the color of the carpet to the support of missionaries. In other churches, the congregation elects the primary office holders, pastor, elder, deacons, who will then make decisions, only consulting the congregation on major issues, such as incurring debt to build a new building or calling a new pastor. However, in congregational churches, if a majority of the congregation objects to any of the decisions or believes that a leader should be removed from office, they have the authority to take action. Most churches with congregational rule are also independent as they believe strongly that final authority resides with the local congregation. For instance, Baptist churches may be part of a denomination, Southern, American, etc., but the denomination has no authority over the decisions of those local churches. The strongest action that could be taken by the denomination is that the individual church would no longer be received in fellowship. Likewise, any individual church can withdraw at any time. In this case, the denomination is more of a voluntary cooperative fellowship. As already noted, there are variations and nuances too numerous to be covered here, and there will always be exceptions to what is stated above. Even denominations that have Episcopalian or Presbyterian forms of government often have to adjust their positions due to congregational pressure and popular opinion. There are evangelical, Bible-believing churches that utilize each of the forms of church government mentioned above. The form of church government is not a major doctrinal issue. The most important issue is that those who are in leadership positions must submit to the authority of Christ and obediently follow his lead as revealed in Scripture. Acts 20.28, 20, 1 Peter 5.2. Christ is the head of the church, and if any system, board, individual leader, or congregation begins to displace Christ and the word with their own beliefs and desires, then that leadership is no longer legitimate. And I quote, <clears throat> so here we are, an hour and uh, plus, right? An hour and 15 minutes, although that'll get compressed down when I truncate silence using Audacity's great editing features. I don't know how much it'll really compress it down because I've been talking fairly fast. But in any event, this is a glimpse, if you will, at the complexity of church government. There are some differing philosophies, as is clear here. Hopefully, this has been helpful to you. Of course, with the time that I've got left, aside from the running commentary, I think this episode is basically going to have to serve as something to refer back to. This is a reference guide to refer back to 
in future episodes where we're going to talk more here and there, now and then, from time to time, about church polity, because I think it is actually very important. I would like, in the next episode, to talk about ideology, actually, political ideology more generally, because we can say this is how the church is run. This is church government. But as already stated, church government has a back-and-forth relationship with government outside the church in the civil sphere. There is a push and a pull from the civil sphere, from the family, from the church government on one another. All three interact and interrelate. All three contribute to one another. And sometimes strong church government can sway and influence tepid local government or civil government or family government or vice versa. A strong family government can influence church government. A strong civil government can influence family government, can influence church government. So we have to be mindful of these things and we have to ask, are we being conformed to the pattern of this world, even just in our context with some or another representative in our midst, or are we being transformed by the renewing of our minds That isn't to say that I am correct in what I favor among these various models, but it is to say we should search the scriptures diligently to make sure that we are handling the business of the church well and wisely. We are interacting in a loving, compassionate, gracious, and God-honoring way with our brothers and sisters in the Lord, and that for the outside world we are maintaining a reputation that is honorable with outsiders. That's a very important thing. That's an important thing. That's a critical thing. We are called to that. We are commanded to be about that. But unfortunately, that's all the time I've got for this episode. I got to run. Stay tuned. Hit subscribe if you haven't yet. Go check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com if you found this podcast episode somewhere else. You can definitely sign up for email alerts. If you go over to Facebook, you can also hit like and follow on Facebook as well. Totally up to you. Just saying, that's an option. Share this with someone you love and know. And if I said anything amiss, if I missed something, if I left something out, if uh, a clarification is needed, if you've got some additional thoughts or resources, by all means, reach out. Let me know. I'll be happy to talk it over with you or hear what you have to say at least. If I don't have anything to say back, I'll be happy to hear what you have to say. But for now, as always... Thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com.